it has been a morning. <laughs> and I get up on stage here, and my notes are not on my stand. Oh, no. So that's funny. Pastor Lord, could you get my laptop from my office? <laughs> I don't know where, who took these notes or what they were going to do with them, but that's a funny joke. Uh, we're going to improvise here. It's just one of those mornings. We've had several people gone, and I want to point out while I'm vamping, but I'm also planning to vamp, E3 kids, we need to expand the stage. Number one, there are so many kids, and appreciative of all parents out there bringing your kids to E3 kids, and I love, just am inspired. The other night, uh, we were sitting to dinner, and Lillian just recited the Lord's Prayer from memory, and we're just like, okay, this is new, this is awesome. Special thanks to Maribel Rivera. She is ill today, which is one of the curveballs we were thrown. And huge, 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 huge. Oh, bless you. Huge thanks. You don't want me just making up a sermon. That's what we knew now. Huge thanks to Devin for stepping in and leading E3 Kids this morning with, with Maribel singing sick. The sad part is that she cannot hear this, but she senses the encouragement as she's dealing with a mob full of kids, also a nursery that is full. We are in desperate need of opening up a new classroom for E3 kids. Right now we have a nursery, which goes up until about age two and a half to three. And then we have three-year-olds up to fifth graders, which if you haven't noticed, a fifth grader is very developmentally different than a three-year-old. So I'm pleading with the congregation, we need people to step in and help in that middle gap of the two to three-year-olds, which are the cutest. They don't talk back very much, very much. Up until that around kindergarten-ish age, they're the cutest of the cuties. We'd love for your help. Please reach out to Maribel, or since she's ill today, please feel free to talk to me if you're interested in helping shape the faith of these little kids. With that in mind, I also strategically put the kids in here because we were talking about lament psalms today. And those who are new to E3, I'm not nearly normally this serious or somber during a message. Most of you know that I am the pastor who is obsessed with game shows. Last week, we did finish the lyrics. This week, there will be none of that. In fact, I think I only have one joke. I know, one joke that'll get us through this message. And I want to talk about just the dark side of, of what is faith, what is life. I was diagnosed about age five with type one diabetes. Type one is, is the one where they don't know why it happens. They don't know what, what causes it per se, but they know your immune system starts attacking your pancreas. And so from age five, I started poking my finger once or twice a day. Thank you, mom and dad. I started taking shots of pork insulin. We've come a long way since the, the 80s with the diabetes treatment. And as I sat there as a five-year-old, I didn't know what I was doing or why I was in the hospital for two and a half weeks. I didn't understand what was happening. And as I grew into a teenager, I realized that it was very unfair in my view that my kids on Halloween would have tons of candy and I sat there and I would actually, and, and again, God bless my parents, I would sell my candy to my parents at an exorbitant rate. So I remember a little mini Snickers was a dollar. Uh, a, you know, a Reese's Pieces was maybe 20 cents. And I would get money to then go buy a toy from my trick-or-treating on Halloween because I couldn't eat the candy. But I realized as I went through there that there was this, this, this cosmic unjustness that I was chosen, not by anything I did, to have type 1 diabetes. And my friends did, except maybe one or two. And there's a solidarity there. And as the years have gone on, this painful unjustness from a cosmic sense just seems to be all the more evident, even to the point where last week I was brought to tears for no apparent reason that I can understand, weeping, that I was taking yet another shot. 
There's a website called Diet Digits and I plugged in all my information and roughly I've had about 70,000 shots in my lifetime, which if you do anything just for a little bit, 70,000 times of doing something you hate causes anger, causes a questioning of why me? So again, welcome to E3, but warning that this is not going to be your traditional Jesus happy sermon. We talk about 70,000 times taking a shot of insulin. But the point I want to make right up front is that God desires our entire emotional spectrum, our sadness, our pain, even yelling at God. And so the connect question this morning falls right in line with this and be as open and honest as you want on the online chat. Please chat in if you feel comfortable. And if you haven't done this ever, take a special pride and, and brag a little bit. Connection question on the screen right now. When was the last time you swore? Find somebody you've not met before, say welcome to E3, and share the last time you said a bad word. It might have been last night. There was an event last night, I heard. This event last night where maybe you swore at a TV. Now, those of you sharing with the last time you swore at your church in front of your pastor, this is not a trap. This is not a trap. Though those logging online, this is like forever in the annals of some website that'll never go away. This is not a trap. If you know Star Wars, this is my joke. This is my one joke, okay? It is not a trap. It is not a trap. Michael Gungor, who's a famous songwriter, said approximately 70% of the Psalms contain lament. Now, they're not lament psalm, but they contain some sort of lament. Even next week, when we do the psalms of joy, there is lament in Psalm 23. Approximately 0%, he said, of the top 150 CLI songs, which is the songs we sing here normally, 0% in most churches contain lament. That was in 2012. In truth, only 40% of psalms are considered lament psalms. That is their main driving focus. But many churches use lectionaries where pastors choose from this lectionary. There's pre-prescribed. You choose from these three passages from the Bible. And the point of the lectionary is that you go through the entire Bible in about three years, roughly. You take out some sections. Now, from three or four options that preachers are able to preach from, the percentage of pastors who chose the Lament Psalms over New Testament or over some other Old Testament reading, you want to guess what percentage of pastors chose the Lament Psalms that they could choose from to preach from? Goose egg. Goose egg. Pastors fled from psalms of lament, from things that are hard, from talking about suffering. Most hymnals in churches who use hymnals contain only 10% of lament, even though the psalms contain 40%, like I just said. Contemporary Christian music is better for sure than a decade ago that we are bringing in psalms of hard lament and pain But the psalmists use pain and lament as a main driver for many of the lyrics as you go through the book of Psalms, 150 of these lyrics. 
From last week, we said that Psalms are 1,000 years of lyrics to help the Jewish people worship over 2,000 years of existence at this point. They contain a variety of style, language, and musical notation. They use instruments we aren't afraid of to know anymore. And we're going to go through a lot of these thematically over the coming weeks. Next week, Pastor Mike will be up here talking about joy. And we did this strategically. I usually am the happy pastor. He's usually the sad pastor. And I said, Mike, we've got to change the narrative, man. People, when you get up, people know you're going to yell at them. And so he'll, he'll be going through Psalm 23. In the coming weeks, we'll be looking at community in Psalms, helping battling enemies, Psalms of penance, repentance. And then as we get into the Easter, or sorry, Easter, we get into Christmas, Christmas, we'll be talking about Messianic Psalms, Messianic Psalms, talking about Jesus and the coming Messiah. But for a people so battered and bruised, especially King David, who writes many of the Psalms, lament must be heard of one's fullness towards worship of God. As evidence, we are scared to show God our sadness, our anger, our emotions, and even scared to swear at the Almighty. How dare we accuse the God who created all things? I used to be a teacher at a place called Boys Town, which is a place where uh, a Catholic institution where p- people who are abused and the abusers and the drug abusers all come to find a safe place to grow as a teen. And as a Protestant theology teacher, I would tell people about God. And I found out very quickly in my first year that it was the kids who had an anger towards God who were much more prone to heal because they acknowledged the existence of God. Their anger, they, they were ticked that God put them in the situations they were in. I've complained about diabetes. I mean, these kids went through hell. And they were angry at God. Yet the kids who were ambivalent or didn't care or just kind of apathetic towards, oh, I don't know. I'll, I'll sit in, in your, your God class, Mr. Martin, but I, I'm not going to really pay attention. Those were the kids who were impossible to reach because they would not acknowledge the presence of a God in a world of so much hurt, sorrow, and frustration. And friends, that's just it, that God wants those things. But what does a contemporary church want? Yes, Jesus can help reframe our suffering and help understand suffering, but suffering is still suffering. In the psalm that Jackson read a moment ago, this individual lament psalm shows that the writer knows nothing but sorrow, and yet he turns to the Lord for deliverance. As in the other psalms of a lament, it is difficult to be sure the precise circumstances of his suffering. He suffered for a long time, was ostracized by his family and friends, it says. He looked to the Lord regularly, but heard nothing. The emotions, suffering expressed by the psalmist are close to those in the famous Psalm, Psalm 22, which is right before the more famous Psalm, Psalm 23. But these two Psalms are traditionally linked to scripture reading on Good Friday, the Friday where Jesus is killed. The structure of the Psalm looks like this on the screen. We see ABC, a prayer for help, an experience of dying, and then a Lord's doing. We'll talk about Salem in a moment. And then it reframes it in a different way. So these are lyrics again. So the song goes A, B, C, and then it goes A, C, B. And the psalmist of this psalm writes the experience of dying in this life as a closure of this psalm. So with that in mind, let's get into the text a little bit. The heading of the song says, A Song, A Psalm of the Sons of Korah, who are a very famous writing group, for the director of music, according to... Mahalata Leonoth, which we have no idea what that means. A masculine, which is a form of Jewish writing. And of Heman the Ezraite. Again, we don't know much about this person, but they, this is the, the, the background of the CD or the record or the little tagline on your computer as you click on the song. And this is what he writes. Lord, 
You are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. And the cry is not just a cry, but it is a piercing shout. A piercing shout is that Hebrew word, meaning it cuts through like a knife that is so easy to hear. Verse three, I'm overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Think about this from the ancient reader's perspective. These are Jews who are constantly running from danger, from enemies. And the readers who are Jewish people would read this and feel comfort in some level. It's like when you get broken up with and you listen to a blues song, you feel happy and it doesn't make sense why because a blues song should make me more sad. But it's the idea of hearing someone else put words to your emotions that can sometimes bring clarity. They felt cut off from God while in slavery in Egypt. Apart from God as four nations invaded and sent into captivity over and over and over alone as power after power swept over them and destroyed all that they had and held dear. But these words also carry a great sense of individual suffering in this life. The writer feels apart from God's blessings and his soul itself has been marred. Moreover, the grave is Sheol, the state of death with its negative associations that await him. The psalmist is alive, but dead as to his community. He exists like a shade, a man without strength. He further compares himself with an unknown soldier who together with the slain were buried in some sort of mass grave. It's very, very just in your face, gruesome, brutal. And the whole point is that God is absent. For the Old Testament, as the psalmist world revolves around, death was unnatural. It is unclean. It wasn't the intention of what life should be like. So it must follow that God must have chosen his path for this author. Again, he's expressing his experience of dying and then he starts accusing God, starting at verse six. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. And then we get this word Selah. You've taken me from my closest friends. You've made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. Here the author makes four accusations of God. God has put him in the pit alone, sent his wrath, and made him alone. The last observation is the author uses a Hebrew plan word where I and grief are almost the identical same word, nearly. And the play on word has meaning to the reader in the ancient language. It's chosen as a literary tool here. But the larger question that the author provides us to wrestle with and to realize that these psalms of lament have such strategic purpose and place in our worship life is this, does God cause suffering? It's uncomfortable to ask that, right? Because sometimes the answer you'd say is yes, you can look back and say, see it very clearly. And then sometimes you look back and you say, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know. The philosophical question that goes with it is like this. It's called the problem of pain. And it goes like this, that God, who's a creator of all things, and God is good, amen? Yes, 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 good, good, good. God creates this world, 
And this world is very good, right? That's not so authoritative, okay, good. You're wrestling with this now. There is problems in this world. There are injustices in this world. There are kids who get diabetes in this world, right? And because of that, why couldn't a good God just make this world just a little tiny bit better? Why have any suffering at all? Why put that apple in the garden in the first place, right? It's not Adam and Eve's fault. Uncomfortable laughter is fine. This is not meant to be funny, but it is uncomfortable and sometimes we laugh. It's okay. We believe, and to, to be case in point, there is no answer to this philosophical question. It is a question we will not get answers to until the life to come. But what we believe from an outsider view is that suffering, depravity, anger, and loss have meaning in the view of our faith. There is meaning outside of faith. If I wasn't a believer, I'd say, okay, I have diabetes because it's some sort of weird genetic thing that my white blood cells just have a little party in my pancreas. But the inequity of life does not make sense now with the faith eyes that we have, but someday it will make sense with the hope that we have in our faith. Those who do not believe cannot do what we have. It is the faith in the life to come that sounds insane to those who do not have it and is only meaning to a life riddled with misery except that everything is done by random chance for those who do not have faith. Those that do believe with a full faith of all emotion of a justice and inequity and injustice so that their faith is based on an escape hatch that gives nothing to the kingdom being built here now before our very eyes. There are days that are hard, almost impossible to comprehend, but there's also a hope embedded outside, among, and even inside of us through that suffering sometimes. Parenthetical note, don't try, please don't try, to interpret or explain away another person's pain. It just doesn't work. The moment you say you understand my suffering is the moment I shut down from you. You understand pain, but you do not understand my pain. Yet, the fact that we're here today pondering such a thing is far beyond chance, I believe. To confront the grossness and depravity of the world so upfront without the hope of Jesus leaves the individual in a paradox. To passively submit to injustice or to call upon God to move and sometimes move through me. God, act. God, see me and see the faith that I have. To have faith that doesn't call upon Jesus to act shows a cheapness of Jesus' sacrifice. God wants you to wrestle with the problem of pain and with sometimes with tears, sometimes with strength, and sometimes, I believe, with a well-placed swear word. So to answer the problem of pain is this. Number one, we are not God. We have to take that seriously, that we can sometimes question why the world is the way the world is. But we have to remember that you are not God too. Jesus takes full part in our pain and then read that sentence in number two back to number one. Jesus didn't have to come to a world and did what he did. He didn't have to experience hunger or aloneness or betrayal or the crucifixion. Jesus likely could have just saved the world because Jesus is Jesus. Do you ever comprehend that? Jesus chose that instrument on the, hanging on the wall over there. Jesus chose by giving up of himself to be crucified on a cross for us, to be in alongside 
and it sometimes, in some level, above my suffering. Three, God desires, therefore, to be in, alongside, and above my suffering. God does not want to be separate, and God can handle both your happy, happy, joy, joy, I love you, Jesus, and what in the world are you doing, God? God can handle it. God can handle when you yell at him, when you scream at him, and when you do all sorts of things that the modern church says, oh, no, you never can do that. Years ago, I was driving through a city, and I was angry at God, and I remember so clearly this day because it just is in so... (laughs) just ironic, I think. I was driving through the city, and I was so angry, I just screamed, and I hit our steering wheel of our minivan, and the horn broke and blared as I went through Omaha, Nebraska for days upon end, and any time I turned on the car, it would just start blaring. And other cars would look at me like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not pressing anything. It's just on. But how awesome is that imagery that sometimes... I can be just angry with God for a moment, and sometimes I need to blare that horn for days upon end that I am suffering and I need help. Because of that, and I believe this is the the key point from these four things. Number four, we must do the same with our faith to others. Do not choose passivity. Be in alongside and sometimes above another person's suffering. Help those who need help. Here, biblically, this psalm and its phrases remind us of two characters from other places in the Bible. The first is Job, who Pastor Mike did a wonderful job preaching on earlier this year. And the second is Jesus Christ. These are words that Job would say in Psalm 88. And I believe these are also words that Jesus Christ might say in his ministry towards the end of his ministry. But structurally, I want to point out this word that we talked about, but we kind of glossed over. It's called this word selah. I believe in the psalm and in many ways that Selah shows the point of listening for God to respond, a break in lifting up song in order to feel the connection that true worship can bring. And friends, this is true worship. The writer feels overwhelmed by God's wrath upon his life. And then we see this word Selah, that there's a response for God to speak and say, I see you, child. I hear you. I'm working behind the scenes. I got this guy, Moses. He's a few generations off, but he's coming. I got this guy, Jesus, who's gonna take away all of it. But he's just gotta be patient. But I hear you. And I believe the writers of Psalms put these words in Selah for a a space. It's not a, a musical term like a rest, but it is a space to hear back from God. To listen. Sometimes it's literal English. Sometimes it's a picture. Sometimes it's just a feeling. Sometimes it's just nothing and you just need to hear nothing. It's okay to accuse God and to wrestle with God. But then place him in your life as a transformation vehicle of your worship. The best prayers are those spoken impromptu out of joy, out of peace, thankfulness, And also the impromptu anger and rage. Not the big pretty ones that I and other worship leaders often offer up on Sundays. We can give you the words, but share your emotions with the divine. Ask why, knowing that answers will not suffice for a variety of reasons. In fact, the writers of Psalms refer to Sheol, grave, and death more than any other book. 
The writers of Psalms were opposed to pagan mythology with its systems of beliefs. But the people of God believed that God was still God in heaven and on earth. And friends, God is still God under the earth. In your sorrow and grief, I want you to apply this and how you look at time. Obviously, there's a future, there's a present right now, and there's your past. And over and over and over as a parent, I realize that there's this moment of saying, I can't wait to be a parent. Please help me in the moment. And then you look back, you say, where did the time go? When we we're able to stand in all three stances of time and adopt a God view of time, we can see not only glimpses of meaning where we are suffering and why we are suffering, but also see the entire salvation story unfolding. See, the lament psalms give us lyrics for the moment we cannot move past our current stance. They allow us to breathe when we feel cornered, feel threatened, and to accuse while we also feel this idea of Selah. And that's what I figured out with my diabetes. It's very personal for me. But there are moments of me being a diabetic where I've influenced other younger kids who are also diabetic to adopt a life of faith, to embrace a life where I can't do all the things I'd like to physically do all the time. There are times where I'm near death daily. My blood sugar is so low that I'm like, okay, I'm about to die. I better eat a granola bar. And that's just how my life works. And I roll with it. I think this is normal. And people are like, no, that's not normal. You don't almost die every day. There is going to be a moment where I look upon the future and say, my body just can't keep up with this churning and churning and churning. And so I'm just going to have to submit to God working in my life. To understand my present, my past, and my future with God's divine eye and realize that God has a plan and a story, not just for me, but for all of us connected together. And that's what these Psalms do. They give us lyrics and give us understanding for the context of how to interpret my own life. For the second half of this psalm, which we've not even gotten into, I'd like to read it aloud as a transition to the response song that's just going to be perfect for us to sing. And for all in the room, know that I want you to feel ministered to and not alienated, not challenged to the point of your faith breaking, but a strengthening and a questioning of, do I just give the easy answers to my faith over and over and over and over when it comes to suffering? Do I just recite these same passages just hoping that it's just covers over something that needs to be more deeply looked into. So I want you to listen to this psalm and then this song we're going to sing together that we will use as a ministering and a sending out for a deeper and a stronger faith. Hear the word of the Lord. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer will come before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me? And hide your face from me. From my youth I have suffered, and I've been close to death. I've borne your terrors, and I am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. 
they have completely engulfed me. You've taken me from my friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Let's sing a response to God who hears even these lyrics.